0: After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Shalom, and they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospels tell us that after a long night, during which time Jesus was mocked and beaten, about 9 o'clock on Friday morning, he was crucified. That crucifixion was followed by six agonizing hours on the cross culminating in his death at three in the afternoon. There was an earthquake. There was darkness. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Disciples scurried around, some of them running of fear. Two, not so well known as disciples of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Could they take him down from the cross and give him burial before the Jewish Sabbath began at sundown? Permission granted once it was determined that for sure he and the other two all were dead. The Sabbath began, long 24 hours, culminating again sundown on Saturday. It was the first day of the work week, early Sunday morning, when pilgrims who had come for Passover started streaming out of the city, and two women went to the tomb. Our story today. A messenger from Almighty God met them there and said, Do not be afraid. And Jesus himself appeared to them and said, Do not be afraid. I've told you that I was appointed pastor of two little country churches when I was 18 years old, two months out of high school. The district superintendent assured me there was nothing to this. I was to go to college five days a week, visit my parishioners all day Saturday, write a sermon Saturday night, drive 17 miles to preach it to a smaller congregation at 9 o'clock, drive 17 miles back and preach to the bigger church at 11 that I would have all Sunday afternoon to write another sermon, which I would preach at the larger church at 7.30 that night, and then go back to college. I felt maybe I could do that. He started to back out of the driveway, and I said, wait, he rolled down the window, and I asked, what if somebody dies? And he said, nobody's going to die, and he drove off. (laughs) Two weeks later, Miss Emma died. I've never forgotten her name. My very first funeral, Miss Emma Roselle. And then another died, and another. In the smaller church, a 46 year old man died of cancer. A few months later, a 48 year old man had a massive heart attack, died instantly. I had ridden a school bus with his children for 12 years. I muddled along, doing the best I could. I was a college student, majoring in history, taking a liberal arts curriculum. Nobody was teaching me how to do funerals. And then finally, I got to the seminary, graduate school at SMU, and I had professors who really tried to help me. One of them told me about the five stages of grief. He said, every person moves through the five stages. Some of them can do it in two hours. You can watch it happen. And for others, they get hung up on the first stage for months, sometimes years. That first one is unbelief. I can't believe he's gone. I can't believe she's dead. Particularly if one's body is not found, it's all the more difficult. Then often anger. Sometimes visited on the hospital or on physician's sometimes clergy who didn't happen to be there right at the right moment sometimes it's anger at the deceased himself can't believe he would leave me here all by myself there, there are three others but one of my professors said any time you see someone who's grieving three things are happening in that person just right off one i've lost somebody i love two i could lose somebody else i love three I'm going to die someday myself. I saw that happen last August in a five-year-old child. One of our grandchildren, our Dylan Nicole. I remember when Rabbi Samuel Carf was here doing our Barton Clinton Gordy presentations, and he talked about a Jewish word, a Hebrew word, yetzer. Yetzer, he said, is found in certain individuals. You have this sense that if we can just keep this person reined in, he or she can make a real difference. That's our little dog. She's got yetzer. She was born with it. The 12 of us usually eat lunch together after church on Sundays. We go to the same buffet at one of the area country clubs. And since we need a table for 12, we're usually assigned to the same table. It's one of those buffets where you can sort of go to the thing that interests you most. She and I are quick decision makers. We're almost always the first two at the table. I have a tendency to sit in the same chair. She comes over and says, may I sit by you? I say, I'd love it. I pull out her chair, push her up. One Sunday, she asked, why do you always sit in the same chair? And I said, because this is the Papa Bear's chair. Oh, she said. But just a couple of weeks ago, Trey's family were out of town that weekend, so it was just six of us, and they sent us to a different table. I started to sit down. I said, would you like to sit with me? She said, yes. I pulled out her chair. I sat down and she said, Granddad, I'm sitting in the Papa Bear's chair. And I said, no, you don't understand. Wherever I sit is the Papa Bear's chair. (laughs) But last August, one Sunday, she and I were the first two at the table. And as I pushed her chair up, she said, Granddad, I'm so sorry, your mother died. My mother hadn't been mentioned in six months. My mother had died six months before, but little Dylan was not really a part of that. My mother had had such severe dementia for some years that there was never any real interplay between the two of them. When my mother died, though she had been in dementia for a long time, her death came sort of suddenly and Jason and Janet decided their three girls at that time were only seven, five, and three. It's a 320 mile drive down and right back again. So they didn't take the little girls. Jason went, the little girls stayed in Tulsa with their mom. So she didn't go through the funeral. And she and I had never discussed it. Suddenly, boom, I'm sorry, your mother died. I said, well, it hurts when one loses one's mother But my mother had a long and wonderful life. I had my mother a long time. And she asked, how old was she? And I said, she was 89. Number two, granddad, how old are you? I said, I'm 69. But if I get to live as long as my mother... You will be 25. You might be in medical school like your mother or father one day have been. You might be a lawyer. You might be a professor. You might be a rocket scientist. You might have chosen to marry some good-looking guy and have a little girl of your own by that time. Number three, she said, I'm going to live to be 100. I said, good for you. You just might make it. Your mother and father and many others are working really hard in the field of medical science to make it possible for somebody like you to get to be 100. Do you see it? Somebody we love has died. Somebody else I love may die. I, too, one day will die. Do you hear the messenger of God saying, do not be afraid? Do you hear the risen Lord saying, do not be afraid? Number two, the messenger from God said, I know who you're looking for, Jesus, the one who was crucified. It literally says the one who was pierced. I grew up in a little Methodist church down in Texas that had a very simple little cross up behind the choir. I had friends who belonged to Baptist churches in town, and I went to Bible school with them, youth meetings occasionally with them. And I discovered in the Baptist churches they had no cross at all. It was just an auditorium where they worshipped. Christmas Eve, my senior year in high school, my best buddy, through all those years of school, asked if I would be willing to go to midnight mass with him at the Roman Catholic Church. There was no midnight mass in my hometown. There weren't enough Roman Catholics to have a priest. So he didn't get to go to Mass very often. He'd have to go to Henderson, Kilgore, Longview, Shreveport to find a Catholic priest on Christmas Eve night. He was asking me if I would go with him to Henderson, about 27 miles away. I asked my mom and dad, they said, sure. I don't know what I was expecting. I'd never been in a Roman Catholic church in my life. At the Methodist Church on Christmas Eve, we have the baby Jesus. We have Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men. When I walked into that church with my best buddy, I saw a life-size crucifix. For the next hour, that's all I saw. A statue as big as I am. I saw those horrible nails in ankles and wrists. I saw that horrible crown of thorn crushed down on his forehead and blood sort of running beside his eyes. I saw that huge gash in his side where blood and water ran. It's all I saw. You can't get to Easter Sunday with all of its glory if you haven't been to Friday. Friday at noon here we sing, Ah, oh, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended we sang, Oh, sacred head now wounded with grief and pain weighed down. How can you appreciate how far the love of God has gone for you if you're not there with him on Friday? Number three. When I was a boy, the Bible I heard preached from, taught in Sunday school, was the King James Bible. The third grader Bible that I was presented when I was in third grade was a King James Bible. And then when the Revised Standard Version came out, my little Methodist church embraced it, and we here have taken the Methodist denomination seriously in saying the new Revised Standard Version is the best in English today, combining both accuracy and readability, Even so, for readability, they sometimes take little liberties with the text. I kept reading this text earlier in the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I kept thinking, there's something missing here. There's something missing here. And I got my King James Bible. I put it side by side. I still have my third-grader Bible. I laid them side by side. There it was. Four times a word left out, all four times, in the New Revised Standard. It's a little Greek word we would write, I-D-O-U. It has a rough breathing mark over the I, so it's sort of a hidu. And it's usually translated, behold. And it really sort of means, and would you believe? And would you believe there was a second great seismos? Earthquake? And would you believe he is going ahead of you to Galilee? And would you believe this is the message you're supposed to take to his disciples? And would you believe suddenly Jesus was there saying shalom to these two women? Phyllis Giffen has written that she had a really bad night, did not sleep well. Just before bedtime, she'd had a phone conversation with her estranged daughter, a daughter who'd been acting out for several years, and she said it almost always ends with a screaming match at the end, and that conversation had. My alarm went off just before 5 o'clock. She said I'd promised my son I would help him deliver the morning papers. He didn't want to get up. I didn't want to get up. But he wanted the money. He wanted the job. And so now I was telling him, get up. This is your job. We've got to go deliver papers. And he was hateful to me. I got my feelings hurt by the time we got back home. He was wondering about breakfast. And I said, fix it yourself. I'm going for a walk. And she said, I started walking in the darkness from my house. And just as the sun started to rise, I came to a big cemetery. Now, she said, that's usually where I turn around and go back home. But something made me go into the cemetery that morning. I found a bench. I sat down, and I started to cry. I was really feeling sorry for myself. And suddenly an old car pulled up beside the curb, an old beat-up Cadillac. An elderly gentleman got out of the driver's side, came around to the passenger side, opened the door, an equally old woman got out. He helped her around to the back of the car. He unlocked the trunk. She took out a gallon milk jug filled with water. And he had a yard broom. He had a pair of snippers. They were obviously about to go into the cemetery. I dragged my eyes, she said, and rushed over to the back of their car and said, May I help you? And the woman handed me the gallon of water, she said. And she took my other arm, and they directed me to the grave they were visiting. They told me this was the grave of their son, only son, killed in Vietnam War 45 years before. How four times a year they come, to be sure, the little hedge near his grave is properly trimmed, all the clippings swept up. How with a clean cloth they wipe away the tombstone, all dust, any animal bird droppings that might be there said as the mother was almost caressing this tombstone with this clean clean cloth and water she was humming a hymn almost under her breath and then i saw her place her head right on his name and she said to him goodbye for a while she said i helped them back to their car and they drove away but somebody needs to do something about death Somebody needs to do something about death. And the Gospels say, somebody has. Notice in Matthew's Gospel, as in Luke, as in John, they want you to understand that these women were not seeing a ghost, nor would the other disciples when they saw him, gives you a clue by the fact that they fell down on their knees and took hold of his feet. In John's gospel, he would appear to the disciples behind locked doors in the upper room and ask, Do you have anything to eat? We have some leftover fish. Give me some, Jesus said. Thomas, do you need to touch me? Touch me. Touch my hands. Touch my side. See that it is I. So, Paul had written long before the Gospels if we have a physical body, we will be given a spiritual body. We shall not all die before the Lord comes, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and we shall see Him as He is. Father James Close, headed the Mercy Boys' Home in Chicago for many years. He wrote about getting a phone call one day from one of the sheriff's deputies, Cook County in Chicago, saying, Father, there's a young man here charged with armed robbery, 19 years old, wants to see you. What's his name? He was told the name. He said, I don't know him. The officer said, I know. He said, you wouldn't know him. But a couple of his buddies ended up at the Mercy Home that you would know them. He would like to see you, Father. He said, I'll be there. So he went to Cook County Jail. He said he was introduced to this young man, 19 years old, thin, gaunt, hardened. I sat down across the table from him and asked, what can I do for you? And he said, I was told that I could tell you my story. What is your story? Well, he said, when I was a boy, six, seven, eight, I think I was like all other little boys. I, I loved playing in the streets when school was out. I could hardly wait for summer when we could start early in the morning and play till dark. I had lots of friends. We played stickball in the streets. We'd play all day. I had a father who drank too much, beat my mother, beat me. She was the only one that worked. She worked long hours and was always tired. We would play until it would be almost dark and I'd hear some woman call down the street, Andy, it's getting dark, come on home. The rest of us would keep playing. Another window would go up. Someone would cry, Billy, it's getting dark, come on home. And then another and another. And finally I'd be the only one left. All alone. Father, I think it might have been different if I'd ever had anybody call me home. Since God raised Jesus, we have been sure there is someone calling us home.